Baffling Combustions is a production of the Institute for Publishing Arts and Station Hill Press. If you want to reach us, email bc at stationhill.org. Baffling Combustions is edited by the Catskill Poetic Action Network. We're live on WCAA and on the Pacifica Radio Network. We're available on most podcast venues. And that's all I got. Enjoy our show. Welcome to another edition of Baffling Combustions with Andrew McCarran, Sam Truitt, and Sparrow as they plumb the mundane and cosmic strange. So here we are again for another session of Baffling Combustions, and my name is Sam Truitt. I am Sparrow. And I'm Andrew McCarran. And today we're going to look at our second poem published in the New Yorker magazine. And this is a poem that was published in this very month within within weeks or a week or, you know, in a recent issue, because we want to grab the tail of the current that is flowing through our lives. And some eddy of it must be captured in the New Yorker. I mean, that's what everybody understands. Like somehow the New Yorker is a barometer of bouncy shenanigans that we engage in in this life. Particularly poetry. It's very prestigious in the world of poetry. It's a, a rare honor to be published there. I've been published twice perhaps rice in the New Yorker. So I'm uh, really an expert in that area, although it's been many decades since I was published and the whole thing was kind of a mistake to begin with, as you may uh-huh. know, if you listen to all but, this podcast. Uh-huh. Yeah. But just as a, as a side note, how did that make you feel Sparrow? Did you feel puffed up after getting in the New Yorker? It's yeah, I, I remember, I think I wrote about it somewhere. Type. Like yeah. when I the, my first poem was published in the New Yorker, I was absolutely elated, like in a state of ecstasy or kind of bliss. Uh-huh. And then the second poem, a little bit less. And then if there was a third poem, which maybe there wasn't. I mean, uh-huh. it just seemed like each time was less of a kick. You know, it's like heroin or something. It's uh, diminishes uh, after a while. Ah, But the first time, really, I mean, I did have this kind of weird um, anxiety because it was during a period where I I felt that I was starting to become famous. And one day I woke up and I thought, if I'm famous, then that means that people that are famous are just people like me. That Mick Jagger is just a person like I'm a person. Right. Uh And all these demigods that I've worshipped my whole life are just people. It was very disturbing, that thought. <laughs> uh, I think if you die young, you know, somehow you crimp it, 
you know, you become kind of oddly iconic, dying young, but then you can't appreciate it. So, well, but I hope know. our enthusiasm for looking into the New Yorker magazine and landing on whatever poem they have floating around there and talking about it, you know, will remain a, an exciting engagement for us. Well, you don't know in the other world. Maybe uh, Jimi Hendrix is having a great time being famous. Uh, you know, it's just well, not yeah. known for sure. Not known for sure, no. But I understand that Jimi Hendrix is the reincarnation of Mozart. Yeah. So hmm. the poem that we're going to look at is Jane Hirschfield's Tin. That's the, the title. And happily, the New Yorker has a recording of her reading this poem reading her own poem so we can hear her poem in her own voice and and in her own inflections and in her own enjambment and you know how does she treat the nature of a written poem back into speech or vice versa okay does ready she guys on the verbs does she prefer the nouns questions like right. that the consonants she, the vowels right and does she, you know, most sort of tellingly, does she deal with the enjambment? Does she deal with the line break? Yeah. Does she do something special there? So here it is. And um, without further ado, do, do, do. anyway, here we go. I hope it'll work. Ten. I studied much and remembered little, but the world is generous. It kept offering figs and cheeses. Never mind that soon I'll have to give it all back. The world, the figs. To be a train station of existence is no small matter. It doesn't need to be Grand Central or Hyder Pasha Station. The engine shed could be low, windowed with cold dust under a slat shingled roof. It could be tin. Another mystery bandaged with rivets and rubies. Leaking cold and heat in both directions, as the earth does. I think we should make it clear to people that this is, uh, the title is tin, T-I-N, not kin. You know, it's a little hard to hear because it's such a short word. Uh, yes, tin, the yeah. element, not kin or pen or something. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, the, I whole, think the whole word's capitalized. Yes, that's a very good right. point. I think that is an excellent point. I also noticed that and hadn't done the operation to sort of see mm -hmm. if whether that's an anachronism of the New Yorker, um, that it's in caps, um, or whether... Jane Hirschfield intends for it to be in caps. And in which case, uh, guys, you know, TIN is tax identification number. Correct. It's, a, it's an acronym used by the IRS. Correct. Although when she says, you know, not to get too far ahead of ourselves, under a slat shingled roof, it could be tin, no caps. Right. Not right. even capital T. 
It does seem very much like she's talking about the element tin, not about the tax identification number. Yeah, which sort of, you know, for me immediately brings up, why did she call this poem tin? Question. I mean, why didn't she call it roof or rivet? Or figs and Jesus. Or figs and Jesus. Is that what you said? Yeah, I said or figs and cheeses, yeah. Oh, figs and cheeses, not Jesus. Not okay. Jesus, yeah. I okay. assume she's a Jew. Hirschfeld is pretty much always a Jewish name, so that would imply well, I mean, I think that maybe... Ex- yeah, extra textually, I mean, I, I think that it's within poetry more or less common knowledge that Jane Hirschfeld is a... a poetic fast poetic manifestation of the face uh, a poetic face of american buddhism oh yeah she comes up comes up a lot and uh, i think she's sort of theravadan or zen practice it's it's difficult to to know and i haven't looked at her biography to sort of get the um scope on that but i think we kind of wanted to leave that, that stuff Aside, so maybe I shouldn't have mentioned it. That's fine to mention it. Yeah, it's an interesting point. Uh, let's talk a little about tin. Uh huh. Mm. Yeah. I I don't know much about tin. Um, as Sparrow already mentioned, it. I do know that it, it it's a metallic element. Mm. I also know that it resists corrosion. Mm-hmm. Um, it is used in many alloys to coat other metals to prevent corrosion. But that's all I know about it. I don't know. Isn't uh, isn't bronze the combination of of copper and tin? Absolutely. And and indeed, what we call the Bronze Age would not have been possible without the understanding of that metallurgical process of combining a little bit of tin with uh, copper to produce bronze yeah, yeah it hardens it up and the uh symbol for bronze for for tin the chemical symbol is capital s small n anyway that's what i remember uh-huh based on maybe the latin name for tin which i don't know what it is yeah and tin affordable tin cheap is it right it's associated with poverty the yeah. uh the tin yeah. roof yeah. Yeah. Had on and a often, roof. Yeah. And often if you have, for example, a flimsy piece of metal furniture like a, a table, you might call it tinny. Mm. And, and then I think that's a pejorative, you know, tinny means that it's a little flimsy or mm. fly by night or by the skirt of your pants or mm. flimsy tinny. Yeah, so I think that's I've never, never heard that. I, I think of Tinny as associated with a voice. He had a tinny voice, like a kind of annoying, slightly reverberating voice. Uh huh. I mean, I I find Andrew's point about tin to be more interesting. You know, it's an it's an element, and that it is something that is a how did you phrase it, Andrew, that it's a sort of 
preservative, that it sustains. It resists that, uh, um, corrosion. It oh, resists yes. corrosion, right. Corrosion. Yeah, which I guess, you know, it could be tin. It could resist corrosion. It could, like, what is it? You know, then we get into, like, the, the you know, the big profound question, what is it? Um, yeah. You know, and it could be that the it has more application, that it's a um, pronoun referring to something that's maybe not even in the poem. Although the first line, I studied much and remembered little, suggests to me some kind of meaning of life type uh, subject, that, that we're getting into something extremely important here. I studied much and remembered little, so well, what did you study? What did you forget? It's, it's, I don't know, something about the resonance of it suggests that we're dealing with something profound to me. Uh -huh. I mean, I, I'm, I dig it. Yeah, I, I think that's sort of the implication in the context in which it appears. And I, I guess the challenge that I have then is with that but, B-U-T, but the world is generous. Yeah. Do we need that but? I studied much and remembered little. And then, but the world is generous. I studied much and remembered little. The world is generous. It kept offering me figs and cheeses. So that sense of exuberance yeah. or of or of the muchness, you know, is still there. But do we need the but? What is but? No, it's but a, is a conjunction. But what is? I mean, what's bothering so, me is that period at the end of the first line. I studied much and remembered little, but the world is generous. Shouldn't it be a semicolon? Like, she's got a kind of obsession with a, these periods all over the place that don't really need to be there, if you ask me. In the penultimate uh -huh. line, there's another really ridiculous um, period. Another mystery bandaged with rivets and rubies, period. Leaking cold and heat in both directions, as the earth does. I mean, that should be a... Oh, comment. yeah, those are incomplete sentences. Right. Um, I mean, I had been thinking that she uses the periods in some grammatical way. Um, like, why do you need that period? And frankly, I'm, a, you know, sh she uses commas and periods in this poem. And maybe, as you point out, she's a little bit generous with them, like the world. I, I think there's possibly... Um, a reason for the uh, the use of punctuation as it stands. I think it gives the poem a rickety feeling, mm. a flimsy mm. feeling that it doesn't quite um, congel. It doesn't join into um, a whole entity. Mm. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, that also the lines themselves are somewhat staccato. You know, you have longer lines, you have little, uh, short lines, four word lines, the world, the figs, uh, the fourth line. Yeah. Um, I, I, I'm not sufficiently familiar with Hirschfeld's work to, you know, draw out whether that's idiosyncratic to this work or, you know, that's just her way of um, putting words down on the page. I noticed she was yeah. a little bit eliding on the enjambment. Um, you know, in oh. her reading, like, for example, windowed with coal dust, 
under a slat shingled roof, it could be tin. She um, didn't read the 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 uh, line breaks. You mean she didn't do like a pause after coal dust, you know, to really mm-hmm. bring home the fact that there's a, uh, you know, obviously there's an intelligence behind it, but you know, some emphasis behind it. Um, so it's a big question when you job. read a poem out loud whether to read the line breaks. I think I it's probably tough. never do personally. Yeah, you and may I think mm-hmm. like poems exist, you know, in the air, read aloud and on the page, and they're two mm-hmm. different poems in a way. I don't think you are beholden to the to the written form of the poem when you read it out loud. But that's just my opinion. Yeah, that that um, is an interesting, but maybe part of a broader discussion. Um, which we should bracket for now, but I think that's there's a whole um kind of um world that we could um bring to bear on that question. Now, yeah, I'm probably not supposed to do this, but you planted the seed, Sam, with your reference to uh, no, you're not supposed to. Oh my god, you're gonna extracurricularize, uh, extra textualize us. Just the, the Jane Hirschfield's. To, uh, I'm interested in Jane Hirschfield's Buddhism in that I feel like the poem is um, a body or a self within a Buddhist universe. I, I see hmm. the punctuation as almost operating like the skandhas, the ever-changing separate elements that make up the, the self. And there's something flimsy, there's something rickety, there, there is not something absolutely substantial to it. Oh, tenuous like. <laughs> There's a tenuous quality. Um, the poem is lightly there. The engine shed could be low, windowed with coal dust, uh, under a slate <laughs> shingled roof. It could be slat shingled roof. Yeah. Oh, slat with shingled roof. It could be tin. I think the poem is this engine shed, which is hmm. the sulfur body. That's how I am like choosing to read it, at least um, at first blush. Because like mm-hmm. the. The idea of the Buddhists kind of don't believe there's a permanent self, a soul. They believe that everything is transient, transitory, like that. That's what you're saying, kind of. Exactly. The, you know, the train station of existence. Um, some things coming in, other things going. The uh, scene constantly changing. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Coming in, another train departing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a yeah. Good, it's interesting good, about good that train. I apologize. It's interesting about that train station thing because we did um, the poem go to Lviv, and that was uh, all about you know ended up at the train station or was you know I think it's a real trope of kind of European and also Eastern European that train station thing Mm. that crossroads. And also just old movies from the 30s and 40s all had trains in them and kind of the romance of trains, the idea that you get in a train, you're sort of in another world, anything can happen. You can Mm -hmm. fall in love, you can murder your wife. Yeah, but I'm with you, Andrew. I do feel that she's talking about the psychic house or the house of consciousness. To be a train station of existence is no small matter to be this place in which existence is passing through. Exactly. The yeah. 
a vessel. And this, this vessel is not the um, Grand Central, the, the beautiful train station that will be around for um, millennia if we don't end up extinct, or the uh, Hederpasa station uh, in Turkey. Oh, is oh, that in Turkey? That's oh, in Turkey. I've been there. That's, um, I believe that's in Istanbul. Hmm. Like the major train station, Istanbul, it's quite beautiful. It has that Ottoman quality to it, architecturally. So it's grand, like, it's like the Grand Central. Yeah. yeah. So it's a hmm. grand train station. Hmm. Uh-huh. Yeah, I think that going back on that sort of sense of tinny, not just in terms of it being a, a, a non-corrosive metal, but that sense of it being like a little flimsy, a little ramshackle a little jerry-rigged um you know she talks about that the engine shed could be low you know and then that idea windowed with coal dust under a slat shingled roof you know it reminds me of tolkien you know who in that brilliant essay the monster and his critics writing about beowulf he speaks of the kind of different theories around the poem Beowulf. But he said, you know, to really enjoy Beowulf, all you really need is not a castle with tu- uh, turrets and uh, minarets and moats and blah, blah, blah. All you need is a simple hut by the sea, like a kind mm. of Irish cottage, you know, in along the cliffs of Moher or something. Not even that grand, you know? You just need something simple in order to appreciate the coming in and going out of this no-small-matter existence. And I want to parenthetically uh, point out that the, that Tolkien revived, uh, almost single-handedly revived Beowulf. It had been neglected for centuries and um, he was, because I once gave a sort of workshop on Beowulf mm. and discovered that, that Tolkien was central in the uh, the esteem that Beowulf now has. Uh-huh. Well, that was his job. He was at Jeepers. Was he at Cambridge or Oxford? Yeah, I don't remember. I think he was at Cambridge, actually. That's what I And, think. you know, he was an Anglo-Saxon scholar. And, you know, obviously, many of the tropes of Lord of the Rings. I I mean, the one thing I would point out, another thing I would point out, is that figs Uh, comes up twice, you know? And it comes up in a slightly different way, you know, slightly nuanced in its second appearance, uh, you know, that the world kept offering figs and cheeses. Now, you can't use figs in the beginning of the 21st century without like um, reference to Rilke, to the Duino elegies, right? Oh, I yeah. thought you were going to say D.H. Lawrence because I saw that movie, Women in Love, the Ken Russell movie uh-huh. in 1972. And uh, they take a pro- ripe fig off a tree and I think it's supposed to be a vagina or something luscious like that. Uh huh. Yeah, it's it's all about like that 20th century thing around like figs and peaches, you know, like uh, ah. Mr. Elliot. Um, Do I dare to eat a peach? Yeah, the anti-Semite. 
Mr. Elliot. Ah, the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock, which, you know, is a good poem and sort of captures a lot of that kind of puerile, so, you know, retrospectively, a little puerile, um, like, sex, you know, opening up the, you know, going into the vault, the deep vault, you know, and there's there's the sex box and you bring it out and, uh, you know, relate it to the poetic horizon, you know. But I guess. is this completely sexless, nebbish, uh, with, with uh, he's like a kind of old maid type uh, bureaucrat who doesn't dare to eat a peach, actually. So he's the opposite of sexy. That's how, and in fact, he's a lot like Elliot himself, like Elliot would grow up to be because he's still a kid when he writes Brufrock. He's like 19 or something. Yeah, he was in his early 20s. He was 28 when he wrote The Wasteland, which does seem young. Yeah. I Figs and cheeses, uh, I just, I think of like a um, some sort of cocktail, high-end cocktail party. <laughs> Something of a, of a luxury, luxuriousness mm. I associate with um, the coupling of figs and cheeses. Also, the, the plural, cheeses, suggests right. affluence, opulence. You know, poor people eat cheese. Rich people eat cheeses. They're like, mm-hmm. here's a little cheese platter. You know, you go to a French restaurant. You're like me. You don't eat sugar. You have a little after-dinner cheese platter with some sliced pear. And there's a few different cheeses. That's the generosity yeah, they, of the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As you become more sophisticated and the fur collar fits a little more easily around your neck then often you come in that in that time after after an evening of eating and drinking then you appreciate at the end of the meal the arrival of the cheese plate and the and on the cheese plate are these different cheeses in fact there's a sort of uh story about elliot and he was presented with the cheese plate and there was the Roquefort, and there was the this cheese and that cheese. And then the waiter said, and then this cheese, we don't know what it is. <laughs> and Elliot said, ah, well, of course, we must take the mystery cheese. Well, kind of, it's a very T.S. Eliot story. Well, you know, um, in terms of figs and cheeses, plural, as luxury items, I was mm. just last night reading um, A Black Theology of Liberation mm. by James Cohen. Do you know him at all? He is what's the progenitor mm. of black theology. Interesting figure, um, influential to many theologians, especially liberation theology. But he wrote about, in this paragraph that I was reading, which I'll read aloud now, he wrote about the relationship between luxury items and um, human finitude and death. Mm. Uh, and something about Jane Hirschfield's poem got me thinking about James Cullen. So I'm going to read this aloud. Is that okay? It's very short. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. So Black Theology. Oh, but by the way, this is in a, um, a section devoted to the theological concept of eschatology. Eschatology, which is the study of end times, apocalypse. Mm-hmm. Hey, uh, Andrew, just really quickly, what is Black Theology, sir? Well, black theology, well, James Cohen invented black theology, and it was, it was an attempt to create a th- theology 
within Christian theology that spoke more directly to the experience of African Americans. Huh. That reinterpreted key concepts through um, a lens of African American experience, hmm. specifically um, in the uh, around um, civil rights. Yeah, James Cohen was the first person to receive a PhD, I believe, from Union Theological Seminary, first black person. And then he was hired onto the faculty and um, taught there. That was his scholarly base until his death. He died, I think, two years ago. He died maybe in 2018. How do you spell his last name? C-O-N-E, James H. Cohen. Mm. And do you know what year this this, uh, essay is that you're going to quote? Yeah, it's a short book. This was published, I guess there was one called Black Theology that came out in 1970, I believe. Mm. This book that I'm going to read from came out in 1986. Oh, okay. So it came out about 15 years later. So here it is. Here's the paragraph from the section Eschatology. Black Theology rejects as invalid the attempt of oppressors to escape the question of death. White rulers in society seek to evade the reality of their end by devising recreational hobbies. They play golf, vacation in distant lands, live in all manner of luxury. Instead of facing up to the reality of finite existence and the anxiety that accompanies it, they pretend that their eternality is dependent on their political, social, and economic dominance over the weak and helpless. With their power to control history, the present and future of other human beings, who can deny that they are the masters of the world's destiny? It is their confidence in their own present strength that renders them incapable of looking the future squarely in the face. Oppressors do not know death because they do not know themselves. Their finiteness and future end. Uh-huh. Wow. Yeah. Wow, that seems super prescient or related or complementary to what Hirschfeld is writing. Because hmm. at the back of it is, you know, in a, in a couple instances, that, scent, that sense of, you know, that this is all uh, dust, my, uh, you know, this too shall pass. Oh, I'll have yeah. to I'll have to give it all back the world, the figs, Um, Mm -hmm. then that sort of sense of mortality to be a train station of existence, another mystery bandaged with ribbits and leaking cold and heat in both directions as the earth does. I guess entropy there. Hmm. Um, Yeah, I remember uh, Amir Baraka, he said, you know, white guys... White men, they're always blowing hot and cold. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. Um, I yeah. guess there's that one instance in which a kind of, you know, I have to give it all back, you know. Yeah, right. And, it's, you know, it's interesting that she, she's looking at the end to, uh, to the earth, something that is the epitome of um, nature being natural as an operative metaphor. But before that, it's all human architecture. Uh-huh. Um, like, uh, there is something profound in this meditation, I, I feel. Well, actually, figs and cheeses, come to think of it, is like uh, kind of a balance of the natural and the human. Figs are essentially the product of nature. Cheeses are made by people. And rivets mm-hmm. and rubies, similarly, right? Mm-hmm. Rubies come out of the earth. Rivets are uh, manufactured. 
I know that rubies also have a, a significance in Buddhism. Oh yeah, as a um, stone, uh, a precious stone that is given to the like as an offering to the Buddha. Huh. I did read that somewhere. I'm pretty sure at some point. Huh. Can I just tell this story about golf? I wish. I'm, I'm uh, listening to we this. need a story about golf. Yeah, because um, yeah, because uh, Andrew that's referenced what the it in Black Theology Paradise of White Guys. On golf. And it yeah. uh, turns out, and I'm listening to this book about the sinking of the Lusitania oh. on, on CDs. It's called Dead Wake. Wake, W-A-K-E. It's kind of a recent pop history book. Mm-hmm. And it's very involved in the love life of uh, Woodrow Wilson, who oh. was president when the Lusitania sank, and he had to decide whether to go to war with Germany over the German U-boat sinking the Lusitania. I think that's 1915. Meanwhile, he's just falling in love with the second wife and full of kind of emotional turmoil. Hmm. Anyway, so he does marry his second wife. They're very close. They're very happy. And they go golfing almost every day, even in the snow. Hmm. And, uh, and Woodrow Wilson's assistant... Uh, paints the golf balls red. I don't know if it's maybe a Secret Service agent or some kind of guard that was on it all time. Paints the uh, golf balls red in the winter so they can be seen against the snow. Huh. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, it's uh, reminiscent of Von Escherbach's uh, Von Escherbach, uh, let's see, 15th century, something like that, called Parsifal. And in the transmission of that story of the perils and triumphs of Parsifal. There's this idea of the three drops of blood in the snow. Oh. Yeah, kind of like those red golf balls. It is, it refers to the, um, the the pudenda and the nipples of a female. Uh. Yeah. I mean, it's super complicated and probably um, convoluted, and there's all sorts of dead ends to it. But the whole thing around the Grail Castle and the thigh, uh, you know, the wound, the uh, groin wound of the Fisher King. And and then there's like all these um, uh, kind of a host of virgins and sexuality is, is weirdly inscribed into the you know, what otherwise is really an awfully good book and, you know, it is an adventure story in some measure. Mm. Um, Anyway, that's sort of interesting. Yeah. Red and white, the combination of those colors is a tantric. Tantric. Related to the rubies, perhaps, in this poem, too. Because there's not too many colors in this poem. Not really any colors at all, except the ruby, which, to me is associated with the uh, redness. It's almost, what's the word, proverbial for redness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Almost as if she doesn't want to distract you from her philosophical point with colors. She wants to make keep everything kind of slap shingled and kind of gray in a way. It's kind of a gray poem, I think. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's interesting. Rivets and rubies are sort of like guns and roses. <laughs> I guess yeah. also rivets and rubies is it's not a bad name for a rock band actually rivets and rubies maybe 
I don't know. I mean, I wanted to point out before that, you know, grammatically when she says it doesn't need to be Grand Central or Haidar Pasa Station, does not mean that it can't be, you know, logically or grammatically, it could still be Grand Central or uh-huh. Haidar It just doesn't need to be. It could be low. But I think she's saying that even Grand Central Station is a, a transient phenomenon. That, mm-hmm. that, that conditional also gives the poem kind of a quality of shimmering possibility. It's really a possibility of a poem, not a reality of a poem. Once, once she starts with uh, it doesn't need to be, the rest of the poem, I think, is entirely in the conditional. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, it could be. It doesn't so need, need to be. It could be exist. ten. Another another mystery bandaged with rivets and rubies. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, um, you know, you have the first four lines that ends the world, comma the figs coming back, the figs, which I think in Rilke, you know, the fig represents also. It represents sexuality, you know, for some obvious reasons. And then and then she gets into this, you know, to be a train station um, of existence is no small matter. That train station, it comes out of nowhere, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, it's not related to... Well, I mean, maybe... Memory, is it related to generosity? I guess it's related to, well, to like, me, many... Uh-huh. To me, it's related to the previous line, which is, never mind that soon I'll have to give it all back, the world, the figs. So, in so other it words, it's all do... transient. It's only here temporarily. Uh, and I'm like, well, so this guy. to be a strange station of existence is no small matter. Since nobody right. else is attacking this poem, I think I'm going to start. No small matter, it's just a horrible phrase. You know, uh-huh. it's like a Victorian, you know, it's like a hedging the question, you know, like, what? say it, whatever you want to say. No small matter is like some barrister in a, in a you know, Dickens novel says, well, you know, a, uh, a, a lawsuit of this kind is no small matter. It's it's precisely the sort of language that you would hear over figs and cheeses. <laughs> ah, good <laughs> That's point. A good a good uh, defense. Good save, yeah. Yeah, but I, I mean, mean to but... be what is she saying then? Okay, so she's saying to be a train station, to be a transitory structure of existence. I'm a transitory thing in which stuff's, you know, people are coming and going. So phenomena is coming and going um, is no small matter. What is, what is it to be? I mean, I agree with you Sparrow in that, well, why not say, you know, to be a train station of existence is friggin' amazing or Or is enormous is, you know, beyond comprehension or why small matter is is she trying to signal it's the challenge of it? It's uh, challenging. It's no um, small feat. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, also, yeah, it takes some fortitude. It takes courage, strength, some mm, stuff. Um, yeah, I mean, it's just so vague. I guess is what I'm saying yeah, to the extent that I'm saying anything. It's a it's a negative. It's not saying what it is. 
So it, I find frustrating. And I find a lot of things about about that phrase frustrating. But one of them is, well, okay, it's no small matter. Does that mean it's a big matter? <laughs> uh -huh, right. But I would agree with Andrew's, you know, reading of it, both in terms of of echoing that sense of what the language that occurs over the fig figs and cheeses and then also i guess you know that it requires as andrew said a surfeit of effort um i studied much and remembered little that remembered little you know i i feel it sort of goes to the last line which you know has leaking you know this idea of the intro oh. entropic universe right um yeah, that's interesting yeah. i mean also another thing i want to hear what matter. thunder has to say yeah yeah can you hear that thunder what was i going to say it was going to be brilliant ah uh, yes oh just at the uh, you know the at, if you're hanging with the perrier brie crowd as my friend acquaintance nick peck once put it uh, you don't tend to bring up the mortal truths, right? You don't, how are you doing? Oh, we're all going to die. It's not right. so, supposed to say within that linguistic context. Mm -hmm. And also, I, mean, I just want to point out that this is a small poem, particularly for the New Yorker. It's like a surprisingly short poem. And though, so, not as, though not as short as your poem, Sparrow. Yes, but even my poems that were in the New Yorker, the two that I can remember, were uh, uh, fairly uh, long, longer no than most kidding. of my poems. Well, anyway, my first one, which was called something like, it was called, uh, my father was a snowman, but he melted. Um, but uh, they changed it to uh, just my father was a snowman. But still, you know, it's a small poem. And, and they put my poems in the talk of the town section because like in the 30s and 40s they would have these light verse poems in the talk of the town Dude. and then they decided i guess after thinking about it that i was writing light verse so i belong to the talk of the town not in the real magazine they put you in the uh in the low shed in the low engine yeah. shed. get some coal dust and uh yeah could i just mention something that um was, I think, germane to Sparrow's observation some time ago about Grand Central and the uh, Major Pasta Station. I uh -huh. did do a little research, and I, I found out that the, um, the Hadra Pasta Station, which I was on the outside of, that um, actually collapsed in, uh. in 1917. It's still there. The shell is still there, but um, an armory exploded. In 1917, hmm. during the First World War, was one of these um, magisterial mm -hmm. uh, train stations, but one that um, came to its end. And yeah, I, yeah, I remember that. I think that's significant. Grand Central is still very much um, with us, but could disappear, could fall to disrepair at any moment, I suppose. Yeah, like Penn Station. Yeah, like I was just going to say, when you think of Grand Central, you think of Penn Station one of the great architectural achievements of Manhattan that was unceremoniously destroyed when in the 50s. And no, the 60s. I, thought, I think that was under Lindsay, Mayor Lindsay. Was it the 60s? I thought so, yeah. Yeah, I could be wrong. Yeah. yeah, I just saw that movie Summer of Soul. It's kind of like the hot new movie. It's uh, 
about these concerts in Harlem in 1969, simultaneous to Woodstock. It was a series of weekends and simultaneous to humans landing on the moon. And, uh, the, you know, some of the greatest soul groups, musicians played in Harlem for free. And there was a giant crowd and, uh, there was a movie, they made a really scrupulous documentary about it, and nobody was interested. Nobody wanted to show it anywhere. And now, mm. 50 years later, suddenly there's interest, and then this movie just came out. And it's uh, incredible. I mean, what's going on in this movie? Like, kind of, the rest of your life, you'll think about it. Oh, think great. About it. I look mm -hmm. forward to seeing it. Here's Guys. John Lindsay. And the guy who's like the MC introduces him. Here's my soul brother, John Lindsay. John Lindsay is gorgeous and uh -huh. smiling shyly, embarrassed. And uh, it just comes off as a, as a great hero. Really. Nice. So, yeah, that I wanted to get your take on the penultimate line. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah, it says, another mystery, another mystery. Was there a first? Uh, well, one question. And then another mystery, bandaged with rivets and rubies. Bandaged with rivets and rubies. Now, is the mystery, the first mystery, the engine shed that's low and windowed with coal dust under a slat shingled roof? It could be tin. So. Or is it referred to it could be tin? Um, we don't know what the roof is of that structure. It could be this. It could be tin. It's a mystery. Another mystery. I don't know. Another mystery. I'm really a little baffled. I'm, I'm maybe going to combust. Uh, and then it's bandaged <laughs> with rivets and rubies. I don't. I don't quite get it. Really. I think it's. Uh, I think this is uh, the metaphysics of selfhood again. Um, and I'm noticing just scanning the palm that the first person, I, drops out of the poem very early. Very good, yeah. Um, so we have two I's, I in line one, and then I'll in line three, and then no, no more. So that mm. the uh, integrity of selfhood is stripped away. I see. Leaving some sort of mystery, how, you know, I think of Mikhail Bakhtin, the literary mm. theorist, referred to the ultimate unfinalizability of who we are to ourselves if we look deeply enough. Hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's kind of like uh, good, uh, you know, the set of all sets that we can't know this experience through which we're passing because we haven't completed it. You know, we're still in the thing. Um, you know, this is a mystery unto death. Kierkegaard, right? Although life must be lived forward, it could only be understood in reverse. Mm. Oh, must be lived forward. It can only be understood in reverse. Life yeah, but I think that... Life must be understood. Life can only be understood in reverse, but, but must be lived forward. Something along those. Sure. Mysterious. Uh-huh. I feel metaphysics of self, but that's what I'm feeling. But that may be my projection. I, I, I oh. agree. I basically agree with you, Andrew. I thought, like... You know, the second, the third and fourth line, never mind that soon I'll have to give it all back, the world, the figs. To be a train station of existence is no small matter. I think that 
basically there's a mystery surrounding that, the mystery of existence itself. That's what I assume is uh, the mystery she's referring to when she says another mystery. But, uh, I, you know, I'm not sure, but I think that's what it is. This poem in some way, the one poem that comes to mind, echoing this poem, is a Robert Frost poem. Oh. And if it's it's after apple picking, one of my favorites, hmm. which mm-hmm. uh, is purposefully unfinished. Really? Yeah. Uh, the whole poem is about um, how all human endeavor is never finished. You know, the the, um, the harvest is never completed. Hmm. Um, the circadian rhythm is never fully completed. Um, there, there are some natural processes that have an arc, a beginning and an end, but nothing within the human realm is completed. And that extends to the poem itself. If you look at the poem, it's jagged. It's unfinished. It doesn't have the um, neat formal quality that a lot of Robert Frost poems have. And I, I, I'm getting similar here. Mm. Some, I, I wonder if the poem is purposefully left rough-hewn. Huh. Uh-huh. Hard to imagine rough-hewn poems getting into the New Yorker, but uh-huh. relatively. Of course, everything's relative. Yeah. And do you think that that is reflected in her... I, I, her or, or Hirschfeld's choice of the title Tin. I I feel comfortable with that reading. I don't know what her intention was, but um, uh huh. I feel like uh, open, receptive to that as a possibility. What? The, yeah, the I mean, title is a I, kind of unfinished title in a way. Is that what you're saying? Oh, um, just as she wants us to be uh, mindful of the uh, flimsy potentially rickety quality of tin. But also you see tin has this positive element in that it's, it's malleable. It may be non-corrosive, but it's also malleable. And then I guess I, I think now of the tin man in the bomb, you know, wizard of Oz series. Right. Yeah. And then, you know, what is the, um, plight or the issue with the Tin Man is he doesn't have a heart, mm. which I think uh, is connected to emotion. He's a symbol of the industrial world, uh, industrial civilization. Somewhere I read right. that there's all sorts of symbology in The Wizard of Oz, and it all has sure. to do about going back to the gold standard, which is why you're, you're walking on the yellow brick road, which is made of gold himself was some kind of populist uh, yeah. uh, philosopher or political thinker, revolutionary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This William Jennings Bryan crucified yeah. on a cross of gold. Yeah, although I don't know what that means. They won't, didn't they want well, free he, silver? He was a big advocate of, of the gold standard. Um, you know, he was a sort of an agrarian, uh, progressive, democratic you know, how we construe dem- democratic politician, lawyer, you know, of course, he's tied up with the monkey trial. Um, right, I was Scopes, say, the monkey Scopes trial. trial. Scopes, yeah, which is super interesting. Actually, Sparrow, you know, going back to our friend, Peter Lamborn Wilson, oh. and his analysis of the Scopes monkey trial is it didn't have that much to do with the uh, theory of evolution, but actually it was a trial of racism. Hmm. If you actually look at the textbook that was at issue, you'll see that it's a racist science book. Hmm. It advocates for eugenics. Oh, right. Yeah, evolution was yeah. used 
for all sorts of right-wing uh, justification. Social Darwinism means that uh, just as the fittest animal survives, the fittest people survive. So the richest people are the fittest, therefore they deserve to be rich. That's uh, one part of uh, social Darwinism. All these kind of evil philosophies came out of Darwin, let alone uh, what's called scientific racism. What Hitler was involved with, the idea you purify the race by getting rid of all the impurities and you just have to uh, identify which parts of the population are impure, gypsies, Roma, I mean, Jews, uh, disabled people, communists. So, yeah, evolution, that's interesting, has, has a lot of negative consequences, but maybe also just as many positive consequences, like science itself, <laughs> anthropology. Uh -huh. so there's maybe right-wing evolutionism and left-wing evolutionism, perhaps. Yeah, what you characterize as right-wing evolutionism is usually compassed in that term social Darwinism. Um, and it still exists now, I think, where you see these... All these scientific studies that show, like, oh, men are naturally have lots of partners because they want to impregnate as many people as possible, and uh, that's best for the evolutionary uh, progress of uh, the human race. And women naturally want to be very selective with their partners because uh, they have to raise the children and they want to make sure that. They have a good father for the child, for genetic uh, heritage of the race. And basically, you know, all the stupid stuff that the society uh, inflicts on people, all the stupid sex roles can be uh, proven to be necessary according to this dopey uh, evolutionary logic. Yes. So, I don't know, it's, yeah, it's, uh, maybe science is just dangerous. <laughs> yeah, I mean, certainly well, I mean, I, I think that this seen. there's a I, I agree that there is an existential architecture, you know, the nature of, you know, human consciousness is being, you know, kind of rehearsed or, you know, worked at in this poem. But there's also a sort of political scan that you can do on this poem relative to the eschewing of Grand Central and just this kind of motley, you know, train station in the burbs, uh, <laughs> right? Or even in the rural uh, provinces. Where do you see the burbs? Oh, I, I apologize. I think Sparrow said it better. Sort of like a rural, you know, shack thrown together so people can get on and off the train and keep going. Well, and also she's sort of saying that it's all equal. I mean, that's how I read that whole uh -huh. argument, that really Grand Central, some tiny little ramshackle uh, railroad, you know, uh, yard in uh, uh -huh. Indiana, that's, they're all the same. It's all one thing. Everything is a, what's the word, train station of existence. So there is yeah. kind of a, a politics of egalitarianism in the poem, you could say. Arguing. Yeah, and that the, the nature of the transitoriness itself the coming in and going out, the perceptual envelope that, you know, we carry ourselves around in, you know, it's indifferent to whether or what is, 
reflected on that surface is um, grandiose or is um, mundane and sort of regular and, you know, needs a good meal before Yom Kippur, which is on our heels, Sparrow. I know, I gotta start eating some figs and cheeses. But I must say, I, I just want to, like, since I'm on my whatever Marxist uh, uh, soapbox, I just want to attack this line about figs and cheeses. Uh, mm. Because the, the thing that kind of infuriates me about The New Yorker and all its poetry is that it's completely of, by, and for the upper middle class. Yep. And this mm. line... But the world is generous. It kept offering figs and cheeses. Well, I hate to tell uh-huh. you, Jane Hirschfield, it does not offer everyone figs and cheeses. Not everyone, uh, you know, most people, uh, in fact, are offered like Captain Crunch cereal and uh, maybe a hamburger. You know, like figs and cheeses are people that go to, you know, high class art galleries, not mm-hmm. even like small art galleries in the East Village, but the better art galleries. And, and no, it's, a, it's an excellent point. I realize that she's talking about herself. She says, I studied much and remembered little, but the world is generous. It kept offering figs and cheeses. It's talking, she's saying, yes, it offered, I think the, the grammar of this suggests that it offered figs and cheeses to her, not to everyone. But it's still mm-hmm. like publishing this poem in The New Yorker. You're kind of suggesting that all of us better people We've all been offered figs and cheeses. We know what it's like to be lying on a chaise longue in Mexico, sipping a uh, delightful rum and coke, you know. Yeah, I mean, Jane Hirschfield, I, I perceive her, I, I, I think she's out in California. I think she's kind of a West Coast huh. person. But, you know, whatever all that means. Puts in Grand Central Station, maybe because she's writing for The New Yorker. Right. Is she writing for The New Yorker? That's a fascinating, you know, subject as well. I think there is such a thing as people writing for The New Yorker. Also, I wanted to point out there are figs and cheeses. And then she has another, you know, at the end, she's got this rivets and rubies. Yeah. Yeah. So some people are like figs and cheeses and some are rivets and rubble. Hmm. Another mystery bandaged with rivets and rubble. No, rubies. I know, but I like rubble. (laughs) It's got some rubies in it. I just think bandaged. I circled that word. I just think it's a dumb word. Like, it just doesn't seem right. How do rivets and rubies bandage something? It doesn't... I can't see it in my mind. Uh I don't think rivets are bandages. If anything, they're just little uh, protrusions. Yeah, but I mean, rivets and rubies, it has alliteration. That's for sure. So, you know, it could be like another mystery bandaged with alliteration, with (laughs) words, you know, with sort of some pastiche that you cover over stuff with, you know, as you would in bandaging something, you cover it. With um, no, I, I understand the metaphor. I just think it's a poor word, bandaged. She's uh, she's never married, and she doesn't have any children. That's because she trained so assiduously in Zen Buddhism, which observes celibacy. Oh, really? But she a lot of Zen Buddhists don't observe celibacy. Monastery for almost a decade. Wow! wow. Terrific. Good. Good for her. Where she did study she in the West? 
Many thanks for joining us on this edition of Baffling Combustions and our ongoing investigation of the uncanny and wondrous. And please join us next time and remember to stay tuned and strange.